Hi, I'm Lone Candle. On March 19, 2003, 160,000 troops invaded Iraq on the orders of President George W. Bush, which resulted in eight years of war, insurgency, and violence. An evil dictator was removed from power, and Iraq became a struggling democracy. But in the process, Iraq order and infrastructure were damaged. Local terrorism flourished as terrorists flocked to the scene to defeat America and used the invasion as anti-American propaganda. Iraq fell into deadly civil strife. Iran's power grew. Over 4,700 U.S. and Allied troops were killed. More than 100,000 Iraqi civilians lost their lives. And in time, former Iraqi military and al-Qaeda combined to form ISIS, which invaded Iraq from Syria before eventually being defeated. Why did the U.S. do this? Why did the United States invade Iraq? One man had the ultimate power to make the call. The U.S. Congress passed a resolution that made the war legal under the U.S. Constitution. Advisors like Donald Rumsfeld, Dick Cheney, Condoleezza Rice, and Colin Powell had influence. So did foreign allies. But ultimately, George W. Bush made the decision. Why did George W. Bush make war on Saddam Hussein? Primarily, Bush was motivated by security. Bush feared what Saddam would do with the weapons of mass destruction, WMD. In the context of 9-11, an attack on the U.S. homeland that killed thousands of people, American leaders were on edge and didn't want to take any chance that there would be a second attack, especially a second attack with weapons of mass destruction. Several other factors may have influenced the decision. Saddam had a history of violence toward foreign countries and his own people, and a history of repeatedly lying to the international community, including about weapons of mass destruction. Intelligence services around the world thought Saddam had such weapons and such weapons programs. On the eve of the invasion, Saddam didn't fully cooperate with weapons inspectors. The U.S. pushed Saddam out of Kuwait in 1990 and maintained not only sanctions but no-fly zones over Iraq. The U.S. Congress had even passed a bill saying that United States policy on Iraq was regime change. American leaders thought taking out Saddam would strike fear into other states who may have wanted to develop weapons of mass destruction or harbor or aid terrorists. Bush and his advisors underestimated how hard the post-war transition would be, and some of them hoped that by creating a democracy in the heart of the Middle East, Iraq would show the region the way, increasing freedom and decreasing terrorism in the long run. Was fear of WMD the clear motivation that it may seem? Can we boil down the psychology of Bush to simply one motivation? Is he confused about the true reason, or even lying? Was this in reality a war for oil? Let's dig into it. Fear of WMD Bush and his advisors state fairly clearly that the reason they went into Iraq was to stop Saddam from gaining a nuclear weapon or another devastating WMD. They feared he would use 
it to blackmail the United States and that he would give such a weapon to terrorists. 9-11. It's easy to forget the palpable fear that resulted from 9-11. Thousands of people had died and people expected several follow-up attacks. Anthrax being mailed to prominent persons heightened this fear. For those leading the country in Washington, the fear was mixed with anxiety and guilt. They had let the country down. They had failed to prevent the 9-11 attacks. It was their responsibility to stop this from happening again. They not only wanted to stop the terror and loss of life that would result from another such attack, but also wanted to prevent the resulting damage to their own political careers. The country may understand not preventing the first one, but a second major attack would be blamed on current leaders. In an atmosphere of fear, anxiety, and guilt, the administration saw Iraq as a threat. Before 9-11, the Bush team discussed what to do about Saddam and chose not to take any major actions. He was a threat they could live with. After 9-11, threat perception was greatly enhanced, and they would not risk Saddam getting nuclear weapons, or some other weapon that could be destructive in a terrorist attack. The failure to stop 9-11 was said to be a failure of imagination. People failed to imagine that Al-Qaeda would attack the U.S. homeland in the way that it did. The Bush administration was determined to not repeat the mistake. They could imagine Saddam gaining a nuclear bomb and handing it to a terrorist group that could get it close to a major U.S. city. They decided not to let this happen. Intelligence Major intelligence agencies from around the world concluded that Saddam had biological or slash and chemical WMD and that he had WMD programs. U.S. intelligence thought this under Clinton. They thought it under Bush before 9-11 and continued to think it afterwards. The Bush administration did not think critically about such intelligence. They more asked the intelligence services for the evidence needed for war rather than a neutral analysis of that evidence. They, at least publicly, ignored the great nuance within that intelligence and the great lack of evidence supporting the notion that Iraq currently had WMD or WMD programs. They spoke misleadingly about the evidence in public in such a way that may have been straight-up lying. They assumed Saddam had WMD and moved forward from there. Nevertheless, the conclusions of the intelligence professionals were that Saddam likely had WMD in WMD programs, despite the many Bush team failures. The intel was wrong, and the administration based their beliefs on the mistakes of intelligence services. While there were rafts of bad direct evidence that mostly turned out to be bunk, the intelligence agencies based their conclusions largely on two things. One, we knew for sure that Saddam had WMD and WMD programs in the past. And two, he had lied about having WMD in the past and then kicked out inspectors in 1998. So it seemed like he had something to hide. Evidence 
on Saddam's links to terror were always weak. The Bush administration may have never said Saddam was involved in 9-11 or Al-Qaeda, but they repeatedly hinted at it in a way that was not supported by the evidence. Saddam had given some support to Palestinian terrorists before. Terrorist groups like Al-Qaeda have as part of their goal to replace the autocracies of the Middle East with an Islamist state. One of their key goals was to end Saddam's regime. So, they would not be a natural ally of Saddam. Nevertheless, the Bush administration feared that Saddam would make a marriage of convenience with a terrorist group to hurt the U.S., under the notion of the enemy of my enemy is my friend. This seems doubtful when such a group could use such a weapon to destroy Saddam himself, and they wanted to destroy Saddam. But, we could imagine it happening. Maybe Al-Qaeda would get one bomb and have a plan to get it near New York. Or maybe there was another terrorist group who only wanted to attack the West. There was basically no evidence of a link, but that was enough to spark Bush administration fears. Saddam. Saddam was a bad, untrustworthy dude with a poor relationship with the United States. He had started two wars of conquest against Iran and later Kuwait. He didn't hesitate to kill and torture his own people if they threatened him, including using chemical weapons against rebels. The United States had fought a war against him in 1990 to eject him from Kuwait. Since then, the U.S. and the U.N. put sanctions on him and maintained no-fly zones over parts of Iraq. Iraq regularly fired missiles at coalition planes, and the planes fired back. Saddam made a failed attempt to assassinate Bush's father, George H.W. Bush. In 1998, the U.S. Congress passed the Iraq Liberation Act that said it was U.S. policy to support regime change in Iraq. This was not an authorization to use military force. Bill Clinton signed it under pressure from Republicans, although it's not clear how much Clinton supported the bill. He was vulnerable due to his Monica Lewinsky scandal. A month later, the U.S. and U.K. bombed Iraq to limit Saddam's WMD capabilities. So, there was a history of animosity between the countries that produced mistrust between the Bush team and Saddam. Saddam was thought to be irrational. His miscalculations and risk-taking were evidence of this. The invasion of Kuwait and the attempt to assassinate George H.W. Bush were seen as incredibly foolish undertakings. And if he made these mistakes he may make the mistake of passing a WMD to terrorists. Bush may have thought Saddam was insane. He said publicly, Trusting in the sanity and restraint of Saddam Hussein is not a strategy and is not an option. Saddam had been caught lying, and caught lying specifically about not having WMD or WMD programs when he in fact had both. So, not only was Saddam a bad man, who could reasonably be predicted to use WMD on civilians, he had used chemical weapons on civilians, he had developed WMD in the past, and he had been caught lying about them. Conclusion? Take them out. So, we have Bush embroiled in the fear, anxiety, and guilt produced by the post-9-11 atmosphere. We have Saddam Hussein, a brutal dictator who had been a danger to his own people and his neighbors, 
a man in charge of a country that verifiably had WMD and WMD programs in the past and who used chemical weapons on his own people. A man who had been previously caught lying about not having WMD and WMD programs. We have intelligence agencies around the world that conclude Saddam has or is trying to get WMD. We have a history of bad blood between this evil man, who intelligence says wants WMD, and the United States. Bush saw all this and concluded, we need to take him out. It is totally plausible that Bush thought he needed to remove Saddam for security reasons. Bush and his advisors clearly say that the reason they went to war was the threat of WMD. Folks, the reason the United States invaded Iraq was fear of Iraqi WMD. This is further shown by the inspections process. Inspections and the final decision. Arguably, previous UN resolutions were enough to legalize the coalition's invasion of Iraq. Advisors told Bush to skip the UN, but British Prime Minister Tony Blair insisted that going the UN route was necessary. In an agreement that both Bush and Blair have attested to, they agreed that when they go the UN route and put inspectors in, it has to be for real. If Saddam really would give up his WMD and let inspectors verify this, Bush and Blair would have to live with Saddam in power. This means the war really was ultimately about WMD. If Bush and Blair thought the WMD issue was being solved non-militarily, they were prepared to live with the brutal dictator in power. I will discuss what happened during the inspections and the extent that Bush gave up on inspections too early later. In short, Saddam cooperated in some ways, but failed to cooperate in others. The inspectors wanted more time, but they also reported a lack of cooperation on the part of Saddam. Even to the inspectors, it looked like Saddam was trying to hide something. It looked like he had WMD and was trying to cooperate just enough to make the U.S. go away, but without giving up his WMD and WMD programs. Bush had 160,000 troops ready to invade. He had told the world that he would invade if Saddam did not comply with a freshly passed UN resolution that said a failure to cooperate would lead to serious consequences. Saddam failed to fully cooperate. At this point, Bush's and America's credibility would have been damaged if Bush made such threats and then did not invade when Saddam failed to comply. It looked like Saddam was thumbing his nose at the U.S. and the U.N. Bush concluded that he wasn't going to keep all those forces in the Middle East forever. He concluded that the only reason Saddam would not fully comply when Bush made such a credible threat with forces on hand to invade, and after the U.S. had already invaded Afghanistan, and after the U.S. had been attacked on 9-11, the only reason Saddam would not comply would be because he in fact had WMD and WMD programs. Bush concluded that the only way to end the threat was war. This isn't to say Bush's judgments were correct, but simply that his motivation was WMD, and his logic for getting there is understandable, even if flawed. For WMD to not have been the motivation for the war, Bush and his advisors would have to be lying, 
misremembering, or slash and confused about their own motivations. Not just at the time, but many years later. I've watched live interviews well after the fact with Bush and others. They say they invaded for WMD and don't appear to be lying or confused. Their explanations seem to fit administration documents that have been analyzed by independent observers, and they fit the historical facts of the run-up to the war. The most supported conclusion is that Bush was motivated by WMD. However, there are other plausible theories. Many comments and actions of the administration can be read as indicating that the decision for war was made much earlier than after Saddam didn't comply with pre-war inspections. If this is the case, it widens the possibility that the real motivations were not WMD. Early Signs of Invasion Decision Casting doubt on the idea that the U.S. went to war for the sake of WMD are many comments from Bush and his administration that make it seem like they were dead set on war with or without WMD. Immediate Suspicion and Opportunity Within minutes of Deputy Secretary of Defense Paul Wolfowitz fleeing his office at the Pentagon on 9-11, he suspected the Iraqis were involved. Hours after the 9-11 attack, Wolfowitz pressed subordinates for proof of Saddam's involvement. Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld asked about Saddam as soon as September 11, 2001. It seems that he was interested in hitting Saddam whether or not Saddam was a threat related to terrorism. Within hours of the attack, Rumsfeld was looking for justifications for attacking Saddam as well as connecting him to Al-Qaeda. On September 12, Rumsfeld and Wolfowitz argued for attacking Iraq. Wolfowitz thought there must be the involvement of a state sponsor. Rumsfeld said Iraq's targets were better than Afghanistan's. It had been claimed that Bush endorsed a strategy of overthrowing Iraq's government in this meeting. On that same day, Rumsfeld asked if 9-11 represented an opportunity to attack Iraq. Also on September 12, Bush pressured his counterterrorism director, Richard Clark, to investigate connections between Saddam and the 9-11 attacks, saying, I want you, as soon as you can, to go back over everything. Everything. See if Saddam did this. See if he's linked in any way. Clark responded, Mr. President, Al-Qaeda did this. Bush forcefully replied, I know, I know, but... See if Saddam was involved. Just look, I want to know any shred. Clark has reported that Bush seemed irritated when Clark told Bush that the evidence didn't connect Iraq. On September 13, Bush wanted the CIA to look for Iraqi involvement in 9-11. Rumsfeld said that in Iraq, the U.S. could inflict costly damage that could cause regimes that support terrorists to change their policies. Bush also asked the Pentagon for a cost estimate of an Iraq war. These actions show that the minds of administration officials went to Iraq immediately, and they seemed determined to find a connection between Iraq and 9-11 or Iraq and Al-Qaeda. If WMD threat was the reason, why did evidence of WMD not lead to thoughts of invading Iraq, rather than immediate suspicion in recognizing 9-11 as an opportunity to attack Iraq? These reactions could indicate that Bush was biased toward attacking Iraq from the beginning, and a careful examination of the WMD threat was not the true cause. However, 
It's also plausible that while Bush was initially suspicious of Iraq, ultimately, he decided to invade due to the threat of Iraqi WMD, not due to suspicions of a 9-11 connection or just as an opportunity to take him out. Additionally, none of this led to an immediate invasion of Iraq. The U.S. did immediately invade Afghanistan, but not Iraq. If Bush was so set on invading Iraq, he could have done so sooner. Declining to attack immediately could indicate that his decision was not yet made and he didn't see Iraq as anything like the Al-Qaeda base that Afghanistan was. Although, the invasion could have also been delayed for political, diplomatic, or such and military reasons. Afghanistan was invaded on October 7th, 2001. Plans, preparations, words of intent. Early on, the Bush team began military plans and preparations for an Iraqi invasion. They also spoke words that showed an intent to invade Iraq. According to Bruce Rydell, who was there and took notes, on September 14, 2001, Bush took a call from Tony Blair and said he was going to hit Iraq soon. Blair was taken aback and pressed Bush for evidence of a link to 9-11 and Al-Qaeda. On September 15, Wolfowitz and others argued that Saddam was probably responsible. Wolfowitz and Rumsfeld proposed Saddam as a retaliation target. Rumsfeld told General Richard Myers, My instinct is to hit Saddam at the same time, not just Bin Laden. On September 17, Bush signed the war plan for Afghanistan. Also on September 17, according to George Packer in interviews Bob Woodward did, Bush said that he believed Iraq was involved, but he didn't have the evidence yet to act. On the same day, he ordered the Pentagon to plan options for invading Iraq. Rydell also reported that on September 18, 2001, Bush's conversation with a Saudi ambassador made it seem like Bush thought Iraq was behind 9-11. The ambassador said that he has seen no evidence of collaboration between Osama and Iraq. The Saudis wanted support for a Palestinian state. Rydell also said that on September 28, Bush saw Jordan's king who wanted Bush to focus on the Palestinian conflict, but Bush was focused on Iraq. On September 18, Bush ordered the creation of contingency plans for an attack on Iraq, including plans to seize oil fields. A September 18 memo from Undersecretary of Defense for Policy Douglas Fife to Rumsfeld had Iraq as the second target after Afghanistan. On September 29, Rumsfeld had the Joint Chiefs of Staff start preparing for the Iraq War with the objectives of finding WMD and regime change. In November 2001, Bush asked Rumsfeld to plan the invasion. Rumsfeld ordered General Tommy Franks to plan for the decapitation of the Iraqi government and to replace it with a provisional government. A November 27, 2001 memo by Rumsfeld considers a war in Iraq. He even asked, How start? And listed three possible justifications for the war. Saddam moves against Kurds in the north. U.S. discovers Saddam connection to September 11th attack or to anthrax attacks. And dispute over WMD inspections. It showed that Rumsfeld already wanted to focus on WMD, but was open to other justifications in such a way that seems to have been a search for a justification rather than the motive. Rumsfeld's notes were prepared with the consultation of Wolfowitz and Fife. In November, the administration planned for both a full invasion and other ways to create regime change in Iraq. 
In December 2001, Bush gave David Frum the assignment to sum up in a sentence or two the best case for war in Iraq. He was assigned to justify the war. Also that month, Franks reviewed invasion plans. General Victor Renart said, There was a sense of urgency to get a conceptual plan in front of the president. Bush told the Joint Chiefs of Staff Chairman, We will get this guy, but at a time and place of our choosing. On October 11, 2001, Blair wrote Bush from Egypt, There is a real willingness in the Middle East to get Saddam out, but a total opposition to mixing this up with the current operation, Afghanistan. I have no doubt we need to deal with Saddam, but if we hit Iraq now, we would lose the Arab world. Russia, probably half the EU, and my fear is the impact of all that on Pakistan. However, I am sure we can devise a strategy for Saddam deliverable at a later date. The U.S. began increasing troop numbers in the region in October 2001. They would hold military exercises and leave more troops behind than before the exercise. Before February 2002, special forces were being diverted from Afghanistan. On January 29, 2002, Bush made his Axis of Evil speech, putting Iraq, Iran, and North Korea in a category of evil. The administration then campaigned for support for invasion, or at least course of diplomacy. Bush ordered General Franks to move forces from Afghanistan to the Gulf in February 2002. In February 2002, George Tenet, the Director of Central Intelligence, met with Kurdish leaders and told them that the U.S. was coming to Iraq. In March 2002, Bush entered a meeting between National Security Advisor Condoleezza Rice and three senators where he said, Fuck Saddam. We're taking him out. That same month, Cheney told some Republican senators, The question was no longer if the U.S. would attack Iraq. The only question was when. On April 5th, Bush said in an interview, I made up my mind that Saddam needs to go. In April, the 101st Airborne Division had orders to prepare for deployment. To the British, it seemed inevitable that Bush would invade Iraq. After Blair spoke to Bush, an anonymous British official said that removal of the Iraqi dictator had by now been hardwired into the administration's thinking. He also said that the whiff of inevitability mingled with the smell of barbecue at the Bush ranch. Detailed invasion plans by the U.S. 3rd Army and V Corps were being prepared. In May, speaking with his press secretary about journalists' questions, Bush unleashed a string of expletives. Did you tell her I don't like motherfuckers who gas their own people? Did you tell her I don't like assholes who lie to the world? Did you tell her I'm going to kick his sorry motherfucking ass all over the Mideast? While objecting to a potential war in Iraq, Richard Haas was told by Rice in July 2002, Decision's been made. Don't waste your breath. Another quote from the Haas-Rice conversation is, The president had made up his mind. Haas believes that the choice was made in July 2002. Those involved in creating the plans for the invasion at the CIA felt that the war was inevitable. Paul Piller, an analyst who helped make the January 2003 Intelligence Community Assessment on Iraq and the CIA white paper on Iraq's weapons programs, said, It was quite apparent from, certainly from I would say early 2002, if not that mid-2002, that we were going to war that the decision had been made. Historical writer John Prados argues that Bush decided on war in the spring of 2002. 
It has been argued that by November 2001, or even the evening of September 11th, war was inevitable. Between fall 2001 and spring 2003, the administration debated how to fight the war, not whether to go. Some claim Bush made the decision between 9-11 and December 2001. Maybe this was not yet a formal decision to go to war, but he had committed himself to Saddam's removal. By March 2002, the British thought the U.S. plan was regime change. The U.S. was ahead of them in the decision for war, although the U.K. was also considering it. Some British observers think the decision was made in April 2002 at Crawford. On June 30, 2002, Bush signed a National Security Presidential Directive ordering the deployment of forces to the Persian Gulf to be ready to invade Iraq. By July 2002, the U.S. started using its no-fly zone not just to attack air defense sites, but Iraqi communication systems, a.k.a. invasion targets. In late July, military plans to attack Iraq leaked. Afterward, in a closed cabinet meeting, Bush acknowledged that the stated mission is regime change and that success is removal of Saddam. On August 7, the CIA gave a study on the implications for post-invasion Iraq. The State Department also had an analysis, and in August, Bush officials were discussing post-Saddam strategy. So, the Bush administration started planning for the Iraq war within months of 9-11, and this planning deepened throughout 2002. They also started prepping the military and even moving troops in theater. Arguably, the war started in July 2002 when the no-fly zone bombing objectives expanded to invasion targets rather than no-fly zone targets. We also have Bush saying and implying multiple times that he was taking out Saddam. This has led many to conclude that the decision to invade wasn't in 2003 when Bush gave up on inspections, but in late 2001 or by mid-2002. Some take this a step further and conclude that the war was not about WMD because ensuring that Iraq did not have WMD could have still been done diplomatically. There are problems with these conclusions. <clears throat> one, if one sees a war as a real possibility, it makes sense to plan and prepare in advance. So, Bush could have done all the planning and preparation for the likely possibility of a war while not having yet made the choice. Two, Bush could have decided on the war early and done so because of WMD. The consensus of intelligence agencies was that Iraq had WMD and WMD programs. The Bush team didn't trust the competency and integrity of UN inspectors, nor did they expect Saddam to fully open up Iraq, so they may have already decided, or at the time suspected, that war was the only option. Third, Bush could have decided on war early, but then was later convinced to give diplomacy a chance. Fourth, Bush may have prepared for war and built up troops in a strategy of course of diplomacy. In this, diplomacy with Saddam is only going to work if the U.S. makes a credible threat of his destruction, and building up troops on his border helps create this. Bush himself claims that his first choice was diplomacy, and that although he didn't expect it to work, he hoped that a U.S. military fully prepared to invade would convince Saddam to cooperate. So, he claims that they were using course of diplomacy, and were not dead set on war. Bush claims that if Saddam would have fully cooperated with inspectors, he would not have invaded, and that then the final decision was not made until 2003, when Bush decided Saddam was not properly cooperating. He claims this decision, the decision that led to war, was Saddam's decision. However, Bush's actual words at the time contradict 
what Bush is saying now. Let me repeat. Bush told the Joint Chiefs of Staff Chairman, We will get this guy, but at a time and place of our choosing. In March 2002, Bush entered a meeting between Rice and three senators where he said, Fuck Saddam. We're taking him out. That same month, Cheney told some Republican senators, The question was no longer if the U.S. would attack Iraq. The only question was when. On April 5th, Bush said in an interview, I made up my mind that Saddam needs to go. In May, Bush spoke with his press secretary about the questions of a journalist where Bush unleashed a string of expletives. Did you tell her I don't like motherfuckers who gas their own people? Did you tell her I don't like assholes who lie to the world? Did you tell her I'm going to kick his sorry motherfucking ass all over the Mideast? If he was prepping for a course of diplomacy at that time, then those quotes are Bush and the Bush team lying. However, these statements could still be consistent with the final decision in 2003 in at least four ways. One, they may have been bluffing. If the plan was course of diplomacy, then they'd want all indications to point toward an invasion so that Saddam would cooperate out of fear, although I'm not aware of the Bush team later claiming these were bluffs. Two, Bush and team may have simply exaggerated or spoken the moment, although they would have had to have done this on a number of occasions. Three, similar to exaggerating or speaking in the moment, the Bush team may have so expected Saddam to not give in to their demands that they assumed an invasion would happen. Four, Bush may have changed his mind. At the time, he may have decided to invade, but after talking with Blair and Powell, they may have convinced him that UN diplomacy should be tried first. I think three and four make the most sense. Bush and company had made clear that they didn't expect diplomacy to work. So they may have spoken like the war was inevitable, even though they were hoping for a diplomatic option. Also, Bush's movements toward using UN inspectors and UN diplomacy did not happen until after these statements. The story of how Bush decided on going the UN route supports that he didn't decide to use the UN and inspectors until after these statements. The Bush team was very skeptical of the UN and UN inspectors. They thought inspectors could be incompetent, corrupt, or unable to outfox Saddam in his own country. Bush and company didn't seem to favor or much consider a UN route before April 2002 when Tony Blair came to Crawford, Texas to meet with Bush. This meeting started on April 7, 2002. Blair wanted to speak of Palestine, but Bush was all about Iraq. Blair said that the British needed the UN process before they can support the war. Bush may have told Blair that if Saddam let inspectors in, then that would adjust Bush's thinking. In his book, Decision Points, Bush said that at the Crawford meeting, Blair suggested using the UN. Bush wrote that he didn't have a lot of faith in the UN, but he agreed to consider the idea. After the meeting with Blair, Bush did not immediately seek UN inspections. By the end of July, Blair sent Bush a letter insisting on Middle East peace progress and UN diplomacy and also dispatched a diplomat. Additionally, Blair called directly. The British were pushing hard to get the U.S. to go to the U.N. On August 4, Brent Scowcroft, former National Security Advisor to H.W. Bush, spoke against an attack on Saddam on Sunday television. On August 15, he wrote an op-ed on the topic in the Wall Street Journal. Bush read this article. 
Secretary of State Powell used Scowcroft's opening and arguments to push for the UN process. Bush polled his senior officials. The results showed that they wanted to at least appear to be trying the UN process. So, Bush only went the inspections route after public protest, pressure from Blair, and pressure from Powell. Cheney was against the UN route. What appears to have happened was, Bush intended to go to war in Iraq without trying inspectors. His diplomacy plan was to build as big a coalition as possible without the UN and demand Saddam to give up all his weapons in a month or two. The Bush team thought that Saddam would not give in to those demands. Later, Bush was convinced to try inspectors. Bush claims that if the inspectors convincingly found no WMD, or if Saddam gave up all his weapons and programs, he would not have invaded. It is a straightforward claim that his prime motivation for the war was WMD. Bush claims that course of diplomacy was his plan all along, with or without inspectors. If that's the case, then for him not to be lying about diplomacy, and not lying when he said he was going to take out Saddam, those comments about removing Saddam were likely him assuming diplomacy would fail. Bush finalized his decision on the UN resolution on September 7, 2002. He wrote that him and Blair knew that they had to be willing to follow through with war if Saddam didn't comply with the UN resolution. Bush also agreed with Blair that they had to give peace a chance. If Saddam really did give up his WMD, they had to live with Saddam in power. It's totally conceivable that Bush primarily was concerned about WMD. Didn't have much of a diplomatic plan initially because he and his team didn't think Saddam would give anything up and was later convinced to try the UN and UN inspectors. This is what he claims happens, and what I think makes the most sense. Although I can't deny the possibility that the true motives were something else, and WMD was either a psychological confusion or a lie. Historian Melvin Leffler studied the case and concluded that Bush made the final decision in January or February 2003. Although it was a process and we can't say for sure. He thinks that Bush was preparing for war with Iraq just in case, but the actual final decision was later. Leffler's research used what decision makers have said, interviews, and administration documents and recordings. Was there a decision? Richard Armitage and George Tennant said the administration never actually sat down and discussed whether they should invade or the imminence of the Iraqi threat. It doesn't appear that the Bush team ever had a formal meeting about going to war, or one that discussed the pros and cons of invading in the first place. A decision on whether to invade Iraq wasn't even really made, it just sort of happened. This fits with the Bush team suspecting Iraq initially, and then believing it's time to remove Saddam. Apparently, they did this without coming together and formally deciding. Lied about war plans? The Bush team kept their war plans, and even the extent that there was a plan, close to the vest, even keeping the British at bay. Bush wouldn't acknowledge that regime change was the central goal, although previously mentioned quotes displayed that, at times, he showed that hand. Bush liked to say, 
I have no war plans on my desk, even though extensive war plans were being made and he saw them. Powell and Rice repeated the no war plans on desk line. The plans were at CENTCOM, not on his desk. Bush was dishonest with the public when he said he had no war plans on his desk. The question wasn't whether they were on his desk, but whether they existed and he was aware of them. This was a dishonest deflection. It could indicate that he was set on invading and didn't want the public to know. He could have used secrecy to stop others from interfering with their decision to go to war. It could also have been done for military purposes to not let the enemy know how prepared they were. This would seem to go against the idea of course of diplomacy, though, where you want the enemy to know how serious you are. Or, he could have done it for political purposes. Either way, I don't think this adds much evidence to the motive behind the war. Confessions Some Bush officials have claimed that WMD was not the actual motive for the war in Iraq. In May 2003, Deputy Secretary of Defense Paul Wolfowitz said, For bureaucratic reasons, we settled on one issue, weapons of mass destruction, because it was the one reason everyone could agree on. Another version of the quote goes, The truth is that for reasons that have a lot to do with the U.S. government bureaucracy, we settled on the one issue that everyone could agree on, which was weapons of mass destruction, as the core reason. A Cheney aide said, The imminence of the threat from Iraq's WMD was never the real issue for us. WMD were on our minds, but they weren't the key thing. What was really driving us was our overall view of terrorism and the strategic conditions of the Middle East. It has been said that a critical mass of senior officials wanted to remove Saddam for their own reasons and then talked each other into believing the most available justification. While this makes it seem like WD was not the motive, Wolfowitz and a Cheney aide are not George Bush. These are their opinions from their perspectives. It's certainly true that WMD was not the main motive for everyone. But the only person who made the decision was Bush, and he says his motive was WMD. Also notice, these quotes aren't them claiming that Bush was lying and his real reason was not WMD, but that for some people within the team or the bureaucracy, WMD was not the highest motive. Intelligence The administration misled the public about the quality of the intelligence and the certainty that could be drawn from it. They also misled themselves and biased intelligence agents by putting pressure on them to find evidence of Iraqi WMD and Iraqi links to terror. Even so, intelligence agencies around the world concluded that Iraq had WMD and WMD programs. They also concluded this before 9-11 and before the Bush administration. So, even without political pressure, the services concluded that Iraq had WMD. They concluded this based on their own assessments, rather than the misleading statements the Bush administration made in public. In the mindset of the Bush administration, they saw the intelligence assessments that Saddam had WMD and WD programs as threats worthy of war, even without their public exaggerations. Lies to the Public while it's true that intelligence agencies concluded that Iraq had WMD and WMD programs, intelligence reports also concluded that much of the intelligence was weak and imprecise, 
They acknowledged that their opinions were based mostly on analytic assumptions and judgments rather than hard evidence, especially on a nuclear weapons program. Intelligence had to use mostly bad information, and conclusions about WMD were mostly based on that we knew Saddam had WMD in the past and was untrustworthy. Administration officials took this nuanced and weak intelligence and presented it publicly like a clear fact that Iraq had WMD and WMD programs. Probabilities and educated guesses made by the CIA became statements of fact. The administration's statements didn't express the substantial disagreements within the intelligence community. They either fooled themselves when reviewing the intelligence or were misleading the American people. The administration hyped intelligence that supported their policy goals while downplaying or ignoring ambiguity or disagreements that went against them. The administration appeared to have publicly manipulated the intelligence for political purposes. It's hard to confirm if Bush straight up lied about intelligence because he may have not fully read intelligence reports or may have been blinded to information that went against his predilections. One study found that administration officials made 935 false statements to gain public support for the war. Some experts reviewed some of the administration's intelligence claims and called them laughably bad. Donald Rumsfeld said, We know they have active programs. There isn't any debate about it. Intelligence said Saddam was a couple years away from WMD and that it was not urgent. Cheney told the public it was urgent. Rice claimed that Saddam's nuclear program was only six months from a crude nuclear device. Alibi was tortured and said Saddam gave al-Qaeda chemical and biological weapons training. The Defense Intelligence Agency said this testimony was not trustworthy, but Bush used it in his case for war. The U.S. and U.K. collaborated on their public march to war and on their use of intelligence. They produced white papers that were coordinated and intended to strengthen the case for war rather than give objective analysis on the intelligence. A British white paper even included some items that intelligence officials found questionable. The items were included anyways because Bush and Cheney spoke of them publicly. The U.S. paper didn't have those claims in an early draft, but added them after Bush and Cheney mentioned them. Congress wanted an intelligence estimate. Tenet was given a week and a half, when usually such an estimate takes months, and the outcome was supposed to match what the vice president had been saying. The 2002 National Intelligence Estimate, NIE, for Congress expressed great uncertainty about WND intelligence, but the short public version had dissenting opinions removed. Most congressmen just read the short version. This was actually a white paper drafted before Congress had requested the NIE, so this was really pro-war propaganda by the administration, not an accurate summary of the NIE. The full version puts doubts on many of the administration's public claims. When Powell prepared for his speech to the UN, he tore up what Cheney had prepared because he thought it was bullshit, meaning even Powell knew what Cheney had been claiming was not founded. A shipment of 60,000 aluminum tubes was claimed to be meant for centrifuges, but experts from the Department of Energy and State determined that they were for rocket launchers. The administration capitalized on capturing some of the tubes and used them for making the argument for war. They did this before waiting for experts to actually analyze the purpose of the tubes. Such experts determined that they were not meant for centrifuges. The CIA created at least nine reports in the summer of 2002 claiming that tubes were evidence of Iraq's nuclear weapons program. Energy and State Department analysts didn't even see those reports. 
both the administration and the CAA jumped on the tubes without doing due diligence. On September 8, 2002, the New York Times reported on the tubes based on purposely leaked documents. Cheney, Powell, and Rice then went on talk shows to give the report more publicity. Rice said the tubes were for nuclear weapons programs. Cheney's public claim that Saddam was trying to get yellow cake from Niger was based on intelligence that U.S. intelligence knew was false. An intelligence source, Curveball, claimed knowledge of WMD programs. German and U.K. intelligence said he was unreliable. The U.S. used his claims anyways. He later admitted to making it all up. Douglas Feith said, My basic view is, the rationale for the war didn't hinge on the details of this intelligence, even though the details of the intelligence at times became elements of the public presentation. This is essentially a confession that intelligence was often used to sell the war, even though it wasn't key for justifying the war in the first place. At least this was the case for some officials. In the January 29, 2002 State of the Union, Bush claimed that Iraq supported terrorists. Even though Bush says in his memoir that he didn't believe Saddam was involved in 9-11 or with Al-Qaeda and that he didn't tell people who he was, he still emphasized that Saddam had worked with terrorists before and could again. Bush wrote, Saddam Hussein didn't just sympathize with terrorists. He had paid the families of Palestinian suicide bombers and given sanctuary to terrorists like Abu Nidal, who led attacks that killed 19 people at an Israeli airline ticket counters in Rome and Vienna, and Abu Abbas, who hijacked the Italian cruise ship Achille Lorio and murdered an elderly wheelchair-bound American. Notice that these were Palestinian or anti-Israeli terrorists, so this amounts to minor support for the violent Palestinian cause rather than supporting American-focused terrorists like Al-Qaeda. Bush and officials repeatedly suggested a link between Iraq and Al-Qaeda, despite the CIA pushing back against an Al-Qaeda-Iraq connection. Bush team members said, you can't distinguish between the two in the context of the war on terror. They talked about an Iraqi intelligence officer being in Prague around the same time as an Al-Qaeda member, that there were some Al-Qaeda members in Iraq at some time, that some detainees said Iraq gave them some training in chemical weapons development. They said things like, Iraq is not a distraction from the war on terror, it is crucial for the war on terror. They would talk about 9-11 or Al-Qaeda, then in the next sentence about Saddam implying that there was a connection. Politization of Intelligence Right after 9-11, the Bush administration suspected Saddam and wanted to get him. They put pressure on the intel community to deliver the evidence rather than simply ask for their best evidence and opinion. Pressure politicized intelligence in a lot of subtle ways. Without politicization, the intelligence services would probably still think Saddam had WMD but they would more often express it with more uncertainty. George Tenet gave the administration the intelligence it needed to make the case for war. He was a Clinton holdover and may have felt vulnerable to being cut. British intelligence chief Sir Richard Dearlave said that intelligence and the facts are being fixed around the policy. The impression that war was inevitable also biased intelligence. The CIA was afraid that if they said Saddam does not have chemical weapons, and then soldiers go in unprepared and die. That would be bad. So it is better to say he has them just in case. They thought we were going to war anyways, so it is better to not be blamed for soldiers' deaths. No intelligence officer wants to be someone who didn't deliver something that led to an attack like 
so analysts would deliver unfounded reports, drowning decision makers in bad intelligence. The CIA and Pentagon disregarded information from other branches of government that went against their theories. The idea that we were all wrong isn't so true when there was good intelligence that was ignored. Robert Jervis studied the intelligence failure on Iraq WMD, in part by interviewing intelligence people and reading their documents. Intelligence officers made a series of mistakes that Jervis details in his work. He concluded that while the politicization of intelligence played a role, it wasn't a key role in the intelligence community producing false intelligence on WMD. The intelligence community said no to an easy post-war occupation. They said no to an Al-Qaeda-Iraq link, and yes on WMD. They only produced the right political answer that the administration wanted in one out of three, so they weren't overly influenced by the administration's demands. The intelligence community was right about how tough Iraq would be after the invasion, and the administration didn't like that. Remember, the intelligence services thought Iraq had WND under Clinton, and under Bush before 9-11. Politization doesn't explain getting WMD wrong. Evidence of Iraq WMD may have been weak, but there was a bunch of little insufficient pieces of evidence that pointed in that direction. And on the background of Saddam's repeated violence and deception, as well as on the fact that he at one point had WMD and lied about it, biased intelligence officials to lean toward concluding that Iraq had WMD and WMD programs. Lies to themselves. The administration fed their own biases and believed a lot of bad evidence and leads. At very few points was there a halt to look over all the facts to see if we should go to war. The WMD claims were not thoroughly challenged because too many in the administration wanted them to be true. They wanted to invade and needed a good justification for the public. Other officials just assumed Saddam had WMD, so the details of the intelligence weren't important. Arguments against going to war and the WMD claims didn't get their day in court. The Bush administration appears to have been taken in by an informant named Chalabi. He fed a mindset that wanted to take us to war. He told people the war could be done easily and that post-war Iraq would be a friend to Israel. He fed information to the media, vice president, and the Pentagon about Saddam being a threat and being linked to Al-Qaeda, and that Saddam had, or was getting, deadly weapons. He did so on a mail-to-order basis. People asked him for information, and he gave it. It was half-baked, or not baked at all. There was no evidence. That Saddam would give WMD to terrorists. Saddam was a control freak. He wouldn't want to give his enemies the power of WMD. Intelligence concluded that Iraq would likely use nuclear weapons defensively and not give such weapons to terrorists who wanted to remove him from power and replace his regime with an Islamic empire. If this is true, then even WMD was not a good reason to invade Iraq. Thus, the administration not only played up the chance that he would get WMD, but the threat he posed if he got one. Nevertheless, no one knows what Saddam would have done with nukes. Clark's office gave the results of an intelligence survey saying that Iraq and Al-Qaeda have different ideologies and that only weak antidotal evidence connected the two. 
Clark has said that the National Security Council returned the first draft because they were opposed to the conclusions. Bush writes about the moment when Tennant gave an unconvincing explanation of the evidence for Saddam having WMD. Bush told him, Surely we can do a better job of explaining the evidence against Saddam. Tennant responded with, It's a slam dunk. Bush believed him. At least in this moment, Bush seemed to have recognized the weakness of the evidence for an Iraqi WMD program, but was quickly swayed away from the insight. At some point, intelligence produced a paper that expressed massive doubt about Saddam having WMD, saying that they really didn't have clear evidence and they didn't know if he had WMD. Rumsfeld sent the paper out to some people, but not Bush or Cheney. Bush and Cheney, rather than having intelligence experts analyze intelligence for them, set up a system where they reviewed raw intelligence. The problem was, lots of intelligence is bad and uncorroborated. That's why it's good to have it screened by a specialist. From Saddam CIA analyst John Nixon's time with Bush, he saw that Bush would ask very pointed questions seemingly to confirm what he already believed rather than to really investigate. He would say something he thinks is true and then ask, don't you agree? He wanted yes or no answers. He thought ambiguity meant you were avoiding the question. When he didn't like your answers, he backed you into a corner that made it feel like your answers were defending an evil man, even when that was not the case. Bush always thought there was a right or wrong answer, and didn't understand nuance. Bush didn't want to spend all day listening to debates. He wanted a consensus and to know what to do. Bush liked punctual, on-time meetings, chop-chop-chop, no going over time discussing ideas. The Bush administration did not request a national intelligence estimate on Iraq's WMD. One was only produced after Congress demanded it. Why not request one if WMD was the purpose of the invasion? Iraq was so much thought to have WMD and WMD programs that the intelligence was assumed correct. CIA officers have reported that the Bush administration ignored or underplayed agents, saying there was no WMD in Iraq. Intelligence Conclusion In the administration, different officials believed different things. Some were likely straight-up lying about intelligence. Others may have believed what they said. Some may have not actually cared about WMD. Others did. When it comes to the decision-maker, George W. Bush, he seems to have really believed the WMD threat. I don't know what he believed about specific pieces of intelligence, but he didn't need any of the misleading statements by him and his administration to make the case for war. Some of the biggest intelligence failures, aluminum tubes, yellow cake, uranium, were not needed to cause a war. Congress defending their vote for the war almost never mentioned these things. Other intelligence was sufficient to convince Congress to vote for the use of force. Based on a variety of bad intelligence, knowledge of previous Iraqi WMD programs and weapons, and Saddam's proven untrustworthiness, intelligence services around the world, both before and during Bush, and before and after 9-11, concluded that Saddam had WMD. All the misleading statements are relevant to the topic of the honesty of the Bush administration and their process failures in evaluating the intelligence but they are not relevant to a discussion about why Bush took us to war. Bush appeared to have believed his and others' intelligence services. He believed Saddam had WMD or WMD programs. 
So, even if he straight up lied about some intelligence, there were other reasons for him to believe in Iraqi WMD. Those were lies to help sell the war, not to hide his true motive. Some lines of intelligence just sounded juicier than others, and therefore made better rhetorical cases for war, even if they were unfounded. Historian Leffler, who studied this period, concluded that while the administration exaggerated the certainty with which the intelligence showed Iraq having WMD, they did sincerely believe Saddam had WMD. Additionally, many thought Saddam would create a WMD program as soon as he was able, if he didn't have one already. So, conclusive evidence of a current WMD program wasn't required for Saddam to be a WMD threat. Bush wasn't the only one who believed the bad intelligence. Not only did world leaders believe Saddam had WMD or WMD programs, Saddam's military officials, generals, and advisors thought Saddam had WMD. They were stunned when told to cooperate with inspectors and were not sure if they really should or not. None of this justifies the intelligence services or Bush administration's mistakes on analyzing the intelligence. It is true that lots of countries and people believed that Iraq had WMD but they just kept it as belief. Only Bush and his allies used it to go to war. Going to war requires a higher evidence bar than just simply believing. Furthermore, Bush really believed Saddam might collaborate with Al-Qaeda. He didn't seem so interested in verifying if it was true. He believed evildoers get in bed with evildoers and that they would follow the enemy of my enemy is my friend, Maxim. What does this amount to? So, we know that the Bush team was immediately suspicious of Saddam Hussein. We know that some of them saw 9-11 as an opportunity to attack Iraq. We know they misled about having war plans. We know that they made military plans and preparations very early, as well as made comments early on indicating that they were going to remove Saddam from power. Some have admitted that WMD was not the main motive. And the Bush team misled about intelligence by making the intel case for Iraq having WMD and links to Al-Qaeda or 9-11 sound stronger than they were. None of this overcomes that detailed investigations that peer inside the Bush administration conclude that Bush really did invade because of WMD. It doesn't overcome that many Bush administration officials and Bush himself insist that WMD was the true motive. And it doesn't overcome that when following the process that led to war, WMD was the ultimate difference maker for George Bush. Just because the Bush team was immediately suspicious that Saddam had something to do with 9-11 doesn't mean they ended up believing that or invading because of that. Just because some officials saw 9-11 as an opportunity to attack Iraq and were not primarily concerned about WMD doesn't mean that was Bush's thinking. Making military plans and preparations makes sense even if war is only likely. Bush's plan was to coerce Saddam to give up WMD. Of course he had to prepare for an invasion in advance, because if coercion failed, the military had to be ready. Lying about war plans could be done for military or political purposes. Secrecy and misdirection benefit both these areas. Bush did make early statements about getting Saddam but those seem to have been made on the assumption that Saddam would not give up his WMD and before Bush was convinced to try the UN. Bush seems to have really thought Saddam had WMD, 
so misleading statements about intelligence were either lies for the purpose of selling the war or mistakes. One can believe the evidence is good and still exaggerate it in the context of convincing an audience. In the end, all of this evidence that can be used to argue that Bush wasn't really motivated by WMD can be explained away and is weaker than what things appear to be on the surface. The Bush team was horribly biased about Iraq and the Iraqi intelligence, but they did believe Saddam had WMD. They did believe Saddam with WMD was a threat, and they believed that if he would not give up his WMD and WMD programs, then war was the only option. Not everything is a lie. Why not give inspections more time? Another action that made it look like the true motive was not WND was the Bush administration giving up on UN inspections early. Although Iraq only partially cooperated at first, the inspectors were getting more cooperation and were hopeful that they could do their job. Bush didn't give them more time and told them to leave because he was invading. If Bush really cared about WND and wasn't invading for some other reason, then why not give the inspectors time to do their work? I would have given inspectors more time. That seems reasonable to me, but it didn't to Bush. I think he made an error in not giving them more time, but I put a level of trust in the inspectors. Bush didn't trust the inspectors. And when Saddam wasn't fully complying, he decided that that meant Saddam was defying the UN resolution, defying the US, defying Bush himself, and likely hiding WMD or WMD programs. In the early 1990s, Saddam gave a lot of false and misleading information. This made it hard to trust him in later inspections and hard for him to prove that he had no WMD. The Gulf War ended in a ceasefire in April 1991. Saddam tried to hide his WMD capabilities and programs, but inspectors detected them. From July to December 1991, Saddam secretly destroyed chemical and biological weapons and missiles, rather than admit he lied. He also destroyed a lot of paperwork. He admitted to more and more as inspectors found more capabilities, but denied other aspects and denied his cover-ups. In 1991, UN inspectors found that Iraq had a more advanced nuclear program than expected. Because the program had already gotten so far, it was hard for Iraq to convince outsiders that it had forgotten to get how to get there, or lost the desire to finish the job. On March 17, 1992, the Iraqis admitted that they had had more chemical weapons and ballistic missiles, and that they had destroyed them. Iraq tried to prove it, but they had already destroyed the evidence that they got rid of all their weapons in a previous attempt to cover up their cheating. Meanwhile, Saddam still said that his nuclear and biological weapons programs never existed. Inspectors found former nuclear facilities and destroyed them. In 1995, Saddam's son-in-law defected and told about Saddam's former biological weapons program. Iraqis came clean about them destroying these weapons back in 1991, but they couldn't prove that they were all destroyed. In 1996, inspectors destroyed a former biological weapons production facility. At this point, Iraq was disarmed and had no WMD production facilities, but the inspectors didn't know that they could not trust the Iraqis. After expelling inspectors in 1998, Iraq's behavior seemed to only be explained by him having something related to WMD to hide. 
On November 8, 2002, the UN Security Council passed Resolution 1441 that said Iraq must disarm and allow inspectors into the country. The resolution said that Iraq had a final opportunity to comply with disarmament obligations. Inspections resumed November 2002. Saddam allowed them into his country. On process, as in visiting sites, inspectors had prompt access to many sites it wanted to visit from the beginning. However, early on, Iraq could have given better documentary evidence and access to interview relevant persons. The Iraqis could have done more to verify the destruction of WMD and WMD facilities. Paperwork from these programs could have survived and scientists could have been provided for interview. Iraqis would temporarily bar access to certain spots, especially at presidential sites. Then the inspectors would eventually get in and find nothing. Iraq was behaving as if there was something to hide, even though there wasn't. The inspection process was not designed to uncover cheating. The inspectors were not scouring the country for WMD evidence. Saddam had to give information that allowed inspectors to see the evidence of compliance in locations. The inspections were designed to prove that Saddam was compliant. Saddam had not fully complied. On March 18, 2003, inspectors withdrew from Iraq at the direction of the Bush administration, who had decided to invade. Inspectors complained that the U.S. and British put them under too stringent of time constraints. They were making progress, and if given more time, inspections could have pursued the different issues to a confident conclusion. Hans Blix, head of the United Nations Monitoring, Verification, and Inspections Commission, during the time of these renewed inspections, said that although there was reluctant cooperation at first, since the end of January, there was an acceleration of initiatives, and since then, Iraq did what they could have to cooperate. They did not cooperate immediately, unconditionally, and actively. They tried to add conditions sometimes, but they did not persist in them. The inspectors were still working on getting people to agree to interviews without the Iraqi government present. Iraq was still updating its list of names to be interviewed. Inspectors said Iraq was cooperating on process, but on substance, Iraq had not provided new evidence or data to resolve outstanding disarmament issues. Inspectors were finalizing a list of issues and measures Iraq could take to fix them. They thought this could be used as a yardstick to judge Iraq's disarmament. Blix also said, Although the inspection organization was now operating at full strength and Iraq seemed determined to give it prompt access everywhere, the United States appeared as determined to replace our inspection force with an invasion army. Other inspectors have also said that the U.S. didn't care about WMD because they didn't want to let the inspectors finish their jobs. Hans Blix said in a 2005 interview, The U.S. and the U.K. chose to ignore our reports and to base their action upon their intelligence. We didn't want an invasion. We wanted inspections. However, some former U.N. inspectors said that Iraq could develop a nuclear weapon without them finding out. Blix said that even with a proactive Iraqi attitude, it would take months to verify sites and items, analyze documents, interview appropriate people, and take conclusions. Scott Ritter argued, There's no doubt Iraq hasn't fully complied with its disarmament obligations as set forth by the Security Council in its resolution. But on the other hand, since 1998, Iraq has fundamentally disarmed. 90-95% of Iraq's Weapons of mass destruction capacity has been verifiably eliminated. We have to remember that this missing 5-10% to 10% doesn't necessarily constitute a threat.
It constitutes bits and pieces of a weapons program which, in its totality, doesn't amount to much, but which is still prohibited. We can't give Iraq a clean bill of health, therefore we can't close the book on their weapons of mass destruction. But simultaneously, we can't reasonably talk about Iraqi noncompliance as representing a de facto retention of a prohibited capacity worthy of war. He also said that if Saddam still has weapons from many years ago, the Sarin and Taboon are only good for five years. VX doesn't last much longer than that, and botulinum toxin in liquid anthrax last three years. So simply holding on to old substances wouldn't make Saddam a substantial threat. In a 2004 interview, Hans Blix said Bush and Blair acted with a severe lack of critical thinking. They didn't properly examine their intelligence sources. Iraq was cooperating, and in February 2003 gave the inspectors hundreds of scientists to interview. Blix thought Saddam had WMD, but thought the inspections were making progress and needed more time. Blix has pointed out that people don't like inspectors and allowing them in creates difficulties for a leader. They explored Saddam's palaces and were security risks because they could give information to foreign intelligence agencies. He said he takes responsibility for failing to see Iraq's nuclear weapons program that was discovered after the Gulf War, but also that inspections had gotten a lot better. These old inspections were designed to inspect countries like Germany, not totalitarian regimes secretly building weapons. Its protocols were changed and new ones were adopted in 1997. He said that the UK and US wanted black and white answers, but they got shades of gray at least partially because they were asking for Iraq to prove a negative. Blix said that Bush should have halted the troop buildup at 50,000 because it was at that point where Iraq became more cooperative, and that with more time they could have interviewed the many people who destroyed the WMD after 1991. He acknowledged that military action may have still been needed if inspections were allowed to continue. Blix said that they executed about 700 inspections to locations based on intelligence given to them. They only found something in three cases, nuclear documents, Vulcan boosters, and empty warheads that could use chemical weapons. They needed more inspections to tell if these were the tip of the iceberg or just leftovers from the icebergs of past destruction. Despite wanting time to finish the inspections, Blix still thought Iraq had WMD. Other inspectors did not, though, and they passed this information to the UN Security Council. A UN inspector said they realized that their findings were not making it back to relevant people in the U.S., a contact at the U.S. mission in Vienna told him to give up because they don't want to hear what you have to say. The CIA and the intelligence cell at the Pentagon didn't interact with the inspectors or their findings. The U.S. wasn't as helpful to the inspectors as they were in the 1990s. In 1991, the CIA, National Photographic Interpretation Center, and the Department of Energy gave inspectors good intelligence. They were not doing this in 2002 and 2003. Other governments gave information and inspectors gave information to the U.S. through the U.N., but were ignored. U.N. inspectors didn't get help from U.S. or British intelligence services, even though the inspectors asked for it. Some in the Bush administration didn't trust the U.N. or their inspectors. They thought the inspectors were incompetent or corrupt. Bush claimed that inspectors were interviewing intelligence officers rather than truly relevant people, even though the inspectors knew who these people were from the 1990s inspections. The day inspectors were told to leave before the bombing started, they were preparing to meet with the head of the Iraqi nuclear program dismantled in 1991. 
Many of the new inspectors in 2002 came from U.S. military and the Department of Energy, and most were involved in previous inspections. Many were experienced from the 1990s inspections, so the administration's contempt for the inspectors seems unfounded. So, the Bush team gave up on inspections early. They should have given inspectors at least a few more months to follow up on Saddam's increasing cooperation. That said, the reason Bush ended sanctions early wasn't because he didn't care about WMD in the first place, but because he thought the only reason Saddam would only partially cooperate was because he had something to hide. It's totally true that Saddam was not fully cooperating, and considering he had been previously caught lying about WMD, it makes sense not to trust him. Bush thought Saddam had his chance, and that Saddam could play this game with inspectors forever. Meanwhile, Bush had hundreds of thousands of troops in the Middle East who couldn't remain there indefinitely. Bush decided enough was enough. It's time for Saddam to go. He was wrong to treat a few more months of inspections as an indefinite period of time, but I can understand why he would conclude that Saddam wasn't cooperating because he was hiding WMD. As far as the Bush team not working well with the inspectors in both giving and receiving information, I believe this is best explained by both a lack of trust in inspectors and the variety of process and thinking issues that got them so fixated on invading Iraq in the first place. They didn't need to cooperate well with inspectors to see that Saddam wasn't fully complying and to conclude that he wasn't doing so probably because he had WND. Bush wrote, If Saddam doesn't actually have WMD, I asked myself, why on earth would he subject himself to a war he will almost certainly lose? He also wrote, Whenever I heard someone claim that we had rushed a war, I thought back to this period. It had been more than a decade since the Gulf War resolutions had demanded that Saddam disarm, over four years since he had kicked out the weapons inspectors, six months since I had issued my ultimatum at the UN, four months since Resolution 1441 had given Saddam his final opportunity, and three months past the deadline to fully disclose his WMD. Diplomacy did not feel rushed. It felt like it was taking forever. And he wrote, Others suggested that the threat wasn't as serious as we thought. That was easy for them to say. They weren't responsible for protecting the country. I remembered the shattering pain of 9-11, a surprise attack for which we had received no warning. This time, we had a warning like a blaring siren. Years of intelligence pointed overwhelmingly to the conclusion that Saddam had WMD. He had used them in the past. He had not met his responsibility to prove their destruction. He had refused to cooperate with the inspectors, even with the threat of an invasion on his doorstep. The only logical conclusion was that he was hiding WMD. And given his support of terror and his sworn hatred of America, there was no way to know where those weapons would end up. Why didn't Saddam comply? Bush concluded that the only reason Saddam would not comply when the U.S. was on his doorstep with an invasion army was because he was hiding WMD or WMD programs. The truth is, Saddam feared Iran and domestic opponents more than the U.S. After the Iran-Iraq war, the Gulf War, no-fly zones, and sanctions, Saddam was weak. He didn't want his domestic and regional rivals to know he was weak. He wanted them to think he may possibly have WMD. 
Simultaneously, he thought he could bloody the U.S. if they tried to invade, and that upon being bloodied, the U.S. would back down and he could negotiate his survival. Saddam tried to comply just enough to satisfy the U.N. and U.S., while also not fully complying to give the impression that he had something to hide for the sake of his regional and domestic opponents. His game confused Bush and the world, and it led to Saddam's death. Neoconservatism Some blame the war on neoconservatives or neoconservative ideology. Neoconservatism is not a formal theory and its tenets and implications differ by the neoconservative. It started in the 1960s. After the Cold War, the foreign policy of neoconservatism focused on the U.S. promoting its ideals. Neoconservatives argued that countries that had similar ideals were more likely to be cooperative and friendly toward the United States. Domestic politics could not be separated from foreign policy or international relations. The U.S. should aggressively defend and expand the liberal international order, democracy, and human rights, using military force when necessary. Paul Wolfowitz, Elliot Abrams, Richard... Pearl, Paul Bremer, and Scooter Libby were neoconservatives in the George W. Bush administration. The neoconservatism story is that advisors in the Bush administration had this pre-existing ideology that used 9-11 to convince President Bush to invade Iraq. I don't believe neoconservatism played a key role in the invasion of Iraq. Bush was not a neoconservative. He ran for president advocating against nation-building and was not for heavy intervening in the domestic politics of other countries. Key advisors like Rice, Cheney, and Rumsfeld were foreign policy realists, not neoconservatives. Some neoconservatives wanted to invade Iraq even before 9-11. They argued for this to Clinton and Bush. Bush said no. After 9-11, the realists favored invading Iraq, but not on neoconservative principles. They didn't suddenly become neoconservatives. They simply agreed on this policy choice for different reasons. While neoconservatives could be motivated by the spread of democracy alone, the realists needed to perceive a more direct security threat like WMD and potential cooperation with terrorists. As argued above, Bush was convinced to invade Iraq based on a security threat. So was Rice and Cheney. Rumsfeld favored removing Saddam before 9-11, but on grounds of primacy and third-party effects. Discussed later. It's true that Bush expanded the goals of the invasion beyond simply removing Saddam and replacing his regime with any that wouldn't build WMD or cooperate with terrorists. And that Bush believed, like the neoconservatives did, that Iraqi democracy in the Middle East would be like a seed that would help spread liberal values across the region. But he didn't go to war to fulfill these dreams. He went to war out of fear of WMD and terror. Some claim that Rice, Cheney, Rumsfeld, and Bush were all neoconservatives. But doing this expands the definition of neoconservative to the point that it has less meaning. Their core motivations were not the same as the neoconservatives. War for Hegemony and Third-Party Influence Similar to neoconservatism, Ideas around third-party influence, demonstration effects, and regional and global hegemony lived in Bush administration officials and advisors, and Bush believed some of these ideas too, but they don't seem key to his decision, so are not prime reasons for war. Even before 9-11, 
Some saw Saddam surviving his defiance of the U.S. and U.N. as a signal of U.S. weakness. After 9-11, this line of thinking saw 9-11 itself as a sign of U.S. weakness. To terrorist groups, rogue regimes, and potential regional and global rivals, the U.S. looked weak. Countries may have taken advantage of this by doing things the U.S. didn't like, including supporting or harboring terrorists. On 9-11, Rumsfeld said, We need to bomb something else to prove that we're, you know, big and strong, and not going to be pushed around by these kind of attacks. Rumsfeld, Wolfowitz, and Faith thought that just doing Afghanistan was too meager and too tit-for-tat. They thought the U.S. should have an unproportionate response to send a message of powerful hegemony. In a September 30, 2001 memo, Rumsfeld told Bush that the U.S. should create new regimes in Afghanistan and another state or two to help change policies elsewhere. Faith wrote in October 2001 to Rumsfeld that war in Iraq would help the U.S. confront Libya and Syria. A Cheney advisor said that Cheney wanted to show that we were able and willing to strike. Both Rumsfeld and Cheney had put much stock in credibility since their time as Cold War warriors. In 2006, Faith said that the rationale for the war didn't hinge on the details of the intelligence, even though the details of the intelligence at times became elements of the public presentation. Afghanistan was a backwards country, already in a civil war, and located in isolated Central Asia, rather than in a more influential region. The U.S. relied heavily on the Northern Alliance, Special Forces, the CIA, and air power. This was not a strong enough signal. The U.S. needed to find someone stronger and throw them across the room. The world needed to know that the U.S. was still powerful and still willing to use force against threats or challengers. Iraq was seen as the perfect opportunity. Iraq was relatively strong, had repeatedly defied the U.S., and was a known evil. Saddam's continued defiance after the Gulf War, sanctions, and no-fly zones was seen as far too bright a flag of successful defiance after 9-11. Some wanted the U.S. to invade Iraq not primarily to prevent WMD, but as a demonstration to the world of U.S. willingness and capability. With Saddam taken out, other countries and even terrorists would fear the U.S. and be more cooperative or less threatening. It has been argued that key advisors linked Iraq to terrorism, pushed a dubious intelligence, exaggerated the Iraqi threat, and acted like the risks of invasion were low in order to convince Bush and the public to invade. They used whatever arguments they could for a war for primacy and effects on third parties. There is a plethora of quotes from Rumsfeld, Wolfowitz, and Fife showing them wanting Iraq from the beginning and not for WMD. Bush said that 9-11 was caused by perceived weakness. He believed that terrorists saw timid responses to smaller attacks and concluded that they could get away with a larger one. After the Iraq invasion, Bush said, We have learned that terrorist attacks are not caused by the use of strength. They are invited by the perception of weakness and the surest way to avoid attacks on our own people is to engage the enemy where he lives and plans. Blair remembers Bush saying that he was afraid that if they didn't act in a strong way, it sent a disastrous signal. Bush has emphasized that a benefit of invading was other rogue states giving up on WMD. However, he claims it was not the reason he went to war. WMD is not unrelated to demonstration effects and hegemony. With WMD, 
Iraq would have more influence and be less vulnerable to coercion and invasion. Convincing third-party countries to not support terror or develop WMD is directly related to security and fear of terror in WMD. Despite Bush's attraction toward these ideas, he says that WMD was why he invaded, and that if Saddam would have given up WMD, Bush would not have invaded. The demonstration and hegemony arguments would have remained pretty strong even if Saddam had given up WMD. So that Bush only went in after Saddam failed to fully cooperate indicates WMD was more important to Bush's decision. I'll bring the influence of these ideas back in when we discuss Bush's psychology. In addition to the harder coercion and persuasion third-party effects mentioned in this section, Bush also believed a benefit of the war would be other countries in the Middle East seeing Iraq's democracy, learning from it, and democratizing themselves. Freedom and Democracy <clears throat> Bush claims that the reason he went to war was for WMD, but once there, he needed to make Iraq a democracy. Likewise, under Secretary of Defense for Policy Douglas J. Fife said that the Bush administration that he was a part of did not go to war in Iraq to democratize the Middle East. They did it for security reasons, but once there, they attempted to democratize Iraq. Casting doubt on whether democratization was not a greater motivator is the deepness with which, with which Bush believed in democratization and the grand ambition he had for transforming the Middle East. Bush didn't simply decide that, Iraq had to be invaded due to WMD and terror threat, and once there, eh, we might as well replace the regime with a democracy. Bush had deep strategic and moral reasons for wanting to make Iraq a democracy. Bush had a religious-like faith and belief in freedom. He thought all peoples yearned to be free. The Middle East had oppressive dictators preventing democracy, but if they could be overthrown, Middle Easterners just like Westerners, were ready to become freedom and peace-loving Democrats. Bush always claimed that, for him, religious values were a guiding light, and that he believed in a divine plan. After 9-11, his rhetoric became more messianic and crusading. Religion offered Bush a frame of reference that helped him understand otherwise senseless events, and his religious values influenced his post-9-11 foreign policy. Bush said, Our democratic faith is more than the creed of our country. It is the inborn hope of our humanity. He also said, The liberty we prize is not America's gift to the world. It is God's gift to humanity. Bush saw a religiously infused mission because he believed freedom was a universal value and it was his duty to fight for it. He said, We choose freedom in the dignity of every life. We have known freedom's price. We have shown freedom's power. And in this great conflict, my fellow Americans, we will see freedom's victory. Bush had a belief in clear good and clear evil. This facilitated his view that Saddam was a threat. Bush wanted to rid the world of evildoers. Because Iraq was a rogue state, it was on the side of evil, on the side of the terrorists. Bush had more confidence in his ability to identify evil due to his religion. Bush's intuitive sense of good and evil meshed well with neoconservative ideology that saw a fight between democracy and dictatorship. The neoconservative view was more secular, but it led to a similar foreign policy after 9-11. Bush saw democracies as good and dictatorships as evil. Thus, invading Iraq to topple an evil dictator and replace it with democracy was a moral good. Not only did Bush's worldview lead him to see violent democracy promotion as just, 
but it facilitated him believing in democracy's strategic advantages. He believed that if Middle Eastern people had a voice, if they were no longer oppressed, if they could live in democratic countries, then people would be less prone to terrorism. He thought that if Iraq, a large country in the heart of the Middle East, shone as a shining example of a Middle Eastern democracy, then the rest of the region would follow suit. This wasn't good simply because democracy is a good in itself, but because people under democracy would be more friendly to the United States and less likely to support terror. In the short term, Bush said that we have to find and kill the terrorists, but in the long run, the spread of freedom and democracy was key. He says that as president, he had to worry about the long term, not just the near future. And long term, the best way to defeat terror was to transform the Middle East into democracies. Bush likes to use Japan as an example. They were a dictatorship and an extremely violent enemy of the United States. Then, the U.S. helped them become a democracy, and they have been close allies ever since. These ideas were buoyed by advisors who remembered the Cold War ending in total victory and everyone becoming happy democracies. They remembered jubilation in the streets and expected the same thing. Richard Haas said that Bush wanted to do something big, accomplish great things, to destroy a nemesis of the United States and change the course of history by transforming a country and region that produced terrorists into modernity. Bush thought his dad was too careful and thought he could accomplish something great at moderate cost. Bush talked about world peace, and Blair wrote him one week into the war, saying that they can now define international politics for a generation and create the true post-Cold War world order and unite the world. Ultimately, it seems to me that Bush didn't go to war for these democratic ambitions, but he decided that if he had to go to war to prevent a madman from getting WMD, then he was going to go big and try to democratize the Middle East. The hubris that led him to believe that this was realistic was not limited to hopes for democratizing the Middle East. Rather, it plagued the whole damn enterprise. Hubris Shortly before the invasion, the Bush administration saw what appeared to be an easy victory in Afghanistan. Ten years before, they had a swift triumph in the Gulf War. They looked toward Iraq and greatly underestimated the costs and pitfalls. It's not that they didn't plan for potential contingencies, but they planned for the wrong ones. Before the war, Bush said it was unlikely there would be internecine warfare between the different religious and ethnic groups. Blair agreed. Other officials also said they didn't expect such violence. However, this should not have been a surprise. Area experts and even a classified war game showed that such violence would be expected. Cheney was not taken out of context when he said that we would be greeted as liberators. And this quote is exemplar of other administration quotes. They were warned about the potential for intercommunal violence, but they brushed it off. Rumsfeld convinced the administration to go in with a relatively small invasion force. His new way of warfare was mobile, light, and powerful. He was correct that this was good enough to defeat the regime. But it was absolutely not what was needed to manage the security afterwards. The administration didn't put deep thought into the security situation after Saddam was gone. They thought it would be relatively easy. Iraqis would rejoice in their freedom, and then they'd figure out how to govern their own country. 
The administration didn't realize how dilapidated Iraqi infrastructure was, how slow oil revenues would flow, how the country was held together by the fear of a dictator, and how with him gone, the different groups would now fear each other. Democracy is hard in any country, especially in one without a history of it working. Without strong democratic institutions, with three distinct and wary identities, and with a meddling neighbor like Iran. Bush thought the Iraqi army could keep control, but it dissolved as Iraqi military members deserted. Some in the administration hoped that they would decapitate the regime, turn over security to the Iraqi police and army, allow international troops in to help, and then the U.S. would leave. By April 15, Bush met with top aides to plan the withdrawal, which would begin in 60 days. So, one reason for the lack of post-war planning was the lack of expectation that they would need to stay in Iraq in the first place. At least it wasn't properly considered by key leadership members, even if it was considered in different places in the government. Leffler concluded that one of the key causes of the war was hubris. The administration had a sense of overwhelming power and moral hubris. This hubris facilitated the administration to think they could achieve so much at relatively little cost. They were wrong. Human rights. Especially after no WMD were found, the Bush administration talked a lot about Saddam's horrible human rights record. This was part of the background information that may have facilitated war, but not a conscious and explicit reason for going to war. Bush and his administration saw ending Saddam's reign of terror as a good, but it's not why they invaded. Furthermore, Saddam wasn't currently killing a lot of people when the coalition invaded. Additionally, Saddam's human rights issues didn't stop the U.S. and Europe from supporting him during the 1980s. And if human rights was truly the motivation, a myriad of other locations on Earth would be just as deserving. Administration infighting Apparently, the administration was plagued by infighting and tribalism. The tension was highest between Rumsfeld and Rice. At times, he treated her arrogantly, or slash and, like a nuisance. Rice may have not been able to handle officiating the internal administration debates. It's not clear how much Bush was aware of the feuding. In an interview, Bush praised Rice for her ability to deal with the stars of the administration. The tensions didn't play out in front of Bush, partially because he didn't have a lot of group meetings with all the key players. He focused more on individual discussions. Such dynamics could have facilitated the choice for war. Some high officials thought they were going to remove Saddam and get out immediately. Others expected them to build a democracy. Different advisors had different motivations for wanting to invade, and this led to poor planning for the aftermath as well as understanding the cost of the war, which makes the war seem like a better option. With major figures feuding outside of Bush's eyes and Bush focused on one-on-one -on -one meetings, there wasn't come-to-Jesus moments for the team to argue it out, not just their gripes, but their different perspectives on the war. Maybe a better post-war plan could have been thought of in a decision-making dynamic that was more cooperative where the feuding was more open to the decision-maker. Maybe it would have led to more questioning of the war itself. Maybe not. Most advisors agreed on war, even if for different reasons, and most accepted the intelligence that said Saddam had or was getting WMD. But administration inviting is a factor worth mentioning. Why not Iran or North Korea? 
A question that comes to mind is, if Bush was so worried about an authoritarian dictator with bad blood with the United States and a desire to gain nuclear weapons, then North Korea and Iran seem to fit that bill just as well as Iraq. Some speeches where Bush lays out the case for war, you could substitute either of these two countries for Iraq and it would make just as much sense. If WMD programs were the key motivation, then why didn't this motivate wars against North Korea and Iran? 1. The U.S. didn't have infinite power, and as things in Iraq and Afghanistan started to go south, mental resources, military resources, and public support for war were all in short supply. Even if Bush wanted to attack the other two axis of evil members, it would have been more difficult due to the troubles in Afghanistan and Iraq. 2. Invading Iran or North Korea would be more difficult to start with. The calculation gets trickier the more costly an invasion is expected to be. Iraq was an already weakened country in the desert who the U.S. already had pinned with no-fly zones. Iran was mountainous, four times larger in square miles, more populous, more united, and not weakened by the Gulf War and containment. North Korea had a million-man army and a citizenry brainwashed to love their great leader. Iran had terrorist proxies that could attack the U.S., U.S. interests, and U.S. allies in the region. North Korea was, and is, within artillery range of South Korea's capital. Japan is within North Korean missile range, and China wouldn't be happy about an invasion of its neighbor North Korea. It has been said that North Korea was already too far along in their WMD program. Iraq still had a way to go to gain a nuke, so it wasn't too late for the U.S. to stop them. Essentially, Iran and North Korea would have been more difficult and riskier. That Bush didn't take on more difficult and riskier invasions after he was already weakened in Iraq and Afghanistan does not prove that he didn't really care about rogue regimes getting WMD. Furthermore, it seems that Bush had a particular ire and distrust of Saddam. I'm not sure if this makes sense from a threat perspective, but his threat assessment may have been off to view Saddam as particularly dangerous even compared to North Korea and Iran. Inertia. Once Bush announced to the world that Iraq was a supreme threat and could not be allowed to gain a nuclear weapon, once Bush built up hundreds of thousands of troops near Iraq, once he had gone through the UN gaining a resolution that said Iraq must fully comply or face serious consequences, once Saddam spent months not fully complying, there was a level of inertia barreling toward war that was hard to stop. This inertia was like its own force, its own factor in the final decision to invade Iraq. War for Oil The claim that Iraq was a war for oil was a popular political slogan, but investigations into the origins of the decision dismissed this. Bush administration documents and conversations don't suggest that oil had much, if anything, to do with the decision. It's true that administration officials recognized that Iraq's oil wealth would help the country rebuild and therefore make the war overall cheaper. But this doesn't seem to have been a key factor in the evasion decision. Bloodlust Bush confessed to religious leaders sometime after 9-11 that he was having trouble controlling his bloodlust. He told Blair that America is angry. Bush thought he contained his bloodlust, but he still leaned into the idea of war with Iraq. It doesn't seem like bloodlust ultimately was much of a factor. He said he had it contained and the nature of the Iraq discussions were more about fear of WMD and terror than satiating bloodlust.
Bush psychology. One possibility is that Bush and Bush administration officials have just been lying and have stuck to their lie. They didn't go in for WMD, but for some other reason. That seems quite unlikely. What seems more reasonable is that Bush doesn't even know why he went in. Human psychology is complicated. It's not clear that the reasons we give for certain actions are the actual reasons we did it. Many experiments have shown people manipulated to take a certain action, and then they make up an explanation for why they did it. There was a lot of context and a lot of arguments for why Bush should go into war. It could be that many factors affected Bush's brain so that he intuitively decided Saddam had to go. WMD may have just been the best rationalization he came up with to explain his gut feeling. As discussed above, Bush explicitly agreed with many of the benefits put forth for why invading Iraq was a good idea. Right after 9-11, he had officials in his ear arguing for invading. I'm not sure he can honestly say he knows why he invaded. Furthermore, the study of human memory has shown it to be amazingly bad. Bush can't accurately remember everything he thought from 9-11 to the decision to invade. Some of this thinking may have been very different than he believes now. I can't say for sure that it wasn't a combination of the proposed motivations and that Bush thinks it was mainly WMD, but he is wrong about his own psychological drivers. That said, the ultimate decision to go to war was a very conscious decision. And before the final decision was made, he made very clear that it was about WMD and that if Saddam would fully cooperate and give up his WMD, Bush would not invade. So, despite not being able to cross off the multi-causal psychological possibility, I still lean toward WMD. Conclusion <coughs> In October 2002, Bush said, The stated policy of the United States is regime change. However, if Saddam Hussein were to meet all the conditions of the United Nations, the conditions that I have described very clearly in terms that everybody can understand, that in itself will signal the regime has changed. In September 2002, British Prime Minister Tony Blair said, Regime change in Iraq would be a wonderful thing. That is not the purpose of our action. Our purpose is to disarm Iraq of weapons of mass destruction. In November 2002, Blair said, So far as our objective, it is disarmament, not regime change. That is our objective. Now, I happen to believe the regime of Saddam is a very brutal and repressive regime. I think it does enormous damage to the Iraqi people. So I have got no doubt Saddam is very bad for Iraq. But on the other hand, I have got no doubt either that the purpose of our challenge from the United Nations is disarmament of weapons of mass destruction. It is not regime change. On January 31st, 2003, Bush said, Saddam Hussein must understand that if he does not disarm, for the sake of peace, we, along with others, will go disarm Saddam Hussein. On February 25th, 2003, Blair said, I detest his regime, but even now he can save it by complying with the UN's demand. Even now, we are prepared to go the extra step 
to achieve disarmament peacefully. On April 10, 2003, White House Press Secretary Ari Fleischer said, But make no mistake, as I said earlier, we have high confidence that they have weapons of mass destruction. That is what this war was about, and it is about. And we have high confidence it will be found. After reading administration comments before, during, and after the invasion, after reviewing historian and journalist documentations of the internal deliberations of the administration, and after going through the history of how the run-up of the war actually went down, it seems to me that the best explanation as to why George W. Bush invaded Iraq is that wrapped up in the fear and guilt of 9-11, where threat perception was high and preventing another 9-11 was a top goal. In a context of personal and country-to-country bad blood between Saddam and the United States, where Al-Qaeda was seeking a WMD to use against the United States, where Bush put much weight on minor support Saddam had previously given to certain terrorists, where intelligence services from around the world said Saddam had WMD or WMD programs, where Saddam had lied about WMD in the past, where Saddam had supposedly shown his irrationality by invading Kuwait, where easy victories in the Gulf War and Afghanistan had led Bush to believe that toppling Saddam would be relatively low cost. He invaded Iraq to prevent Saddam Hussein from gaining more powerful WMDs and to prevent such WMDs from falling into the hands of terrorists. I'm Lone Candle. Like me. Comment me. Love me. Oh, and one more thing. When I say love me, I mean really love me. It doesn't have to be in a sexual way. You know what I'm saying? And I don't care who you are.